Hello, and welcome to No Time for Caution, a podcast about Interstellar. I'm your host, Andy. I am the curator of QuantifiableConnection.com. I'm an interstellar addict, a Matthew McConaughey convert, and assuming I clear out my checking account, potentially a future Lincoln owner. Thank you so much for lending me your ear as we discuss all things interstellar. I'm back, baby. Another long layoff. I apologize. I'd say it won't happen again, but it's gonna happen again. Nevertheless, I am incredibly pleased to be back with you delivering interstellar content. Uh, The past couple years since the last episode debuted have certainly been eventful for me. I talked a lot in the first four episodes about my relationship with my grandfather and how that helped shape my deep connection to Interstellar. Well, life's dealt me some more blows over the past couple years, and just as I'm sure it's been raining down punches on you all because that's just what life does. I lost my grandmother last year. She and I were close from the time that I was young, but our connection deepened after my grandfather passed away. I think... In a way, she and I were a connection to him for one another. The same week that my grandmother passed away, my father died as well. I actually went straight from the hospice the day she passed away to be with my dad. It was a fairly sudden passing. He developed pancreatic cancer, and within a couple months, he was gone. We didn't have much time to prepare. I guess I'm at that age where life stops giving you things and begins to take them away. And that only makes you appreciate what you still have even more. Obviously, I appreciate the family members who are in my life the friends that I have, and, secondarily, my appreciation for the film Interstellar only grows. As you accumulate pain and sorrow and confusion and joy, all of those components that comprise the human experience, you begin to see things in a new light. If wisdom comes from pain, then... I guess everyone in the human race is very, very wise. I'll probably talk about this more in subsequent episodes as I chase some kind of catharsis for all of this, but today I have uh, something pretty interesting for you. Now, I searched the American underworld up and down for the lowest of the low, pond scum, if you will, the kind of man who would be in a 1930s uh, federal propaganda movie about the dangers of marijuana and cocaine. That's right. I found a guy named Dimitri who's going to talk to me about psychedelics and the Tesseract. Now, Dimitri asserts that the Tesseract scene in Interstellar is the best depiction of a psychedelic experience he's ever seen in an artistic medium. That was really interesting to me, so I wanted to get to the bottom of it. 
Now, you'll have to bear with me. I am getting over a cold, and I was right in the thick of it when we recorded this episode. So bear with me. It's a little bit of a low-T vocal performance. I apologize for that. But the conversation is fascinating. I think you're going to love it. So with that said, let's not waste any time. Let's get right to it. My conversation with Dimitri. So, uh, Dimitri, thank you so much for uh, joining me today. Oh, thanks for having me. You know, I'm really, really excited to be here. Interstellar is one of my favorite movies of all time. I really love that movie. And I think that the Tesseract really is a great sort of example of uh, psychedelic experiences and also a great way to visualize when you watch the scene with the Tesseract, you can get sort of an idea of what things you may see because, as, as I'll, I'll walk you through, there are some four-dimensional experiences that your intellectual mind can only really conceptualize in three dimensions. Cooper. Cooper. Come on, Cooper. Roger that. He survived. Somewhere in their fifth dimension, they saved us. Uh, what the hell is they? And this why they want to help us, huh? I don't know, but they constructed this three-dimensional space inside their five-dimensional reality to allow you to understand it. Hell, that ain't working. Yes, it is. You've seen that time is represented here as a physical dimension. You have worked out that you can exert a force across space-time. Gravity. To send a message. Affirmative. Gravity can cross the dimensions, including time. Apparently. As a man who's not walked in the clouds, as it were, let me sort of talk a little bit about my understanding or experience of the spirituality of the Tesseract. And then, folks, we're going to uh, jump down a rabbit hole with both feet and see where it may lead us. So one of the reasons the film spoke to me in the way it did is that it gave me a secular understanding of spirituality. The essential idea for me that love is a quantifiable, transcendent, scientific property such that Cooper can actually use it as sort of a homing beacon to find his daughter and accomplish what he needs to do to save the human race. That was deeply meaningful for me, even though all I can do is experience that vicariously through Cooper because I don't have any analogous experiences in my own life. So for you, it's very different. For you, it's reflective of something you feel you have experienced. I know nothing about any of this stuff. So let's just sort of start at square one. I think as human beings, we really are naturally curious. And I think that the human mind is uncomfortable with uncertainty. So we seek answers, whether that manifests in a spiritual institution, religion, science, each mind is unique and therefore finds its answer uniquely in different institutions or whatever it might be. 
And so finding the answer to life's big questions, what is death? What is the purpose of this? What is the material universe? What am I experiencing? And maybe most importantly, what is consciousness? The question, what is consciousness, is what led me to the psychedelics. Because from what I had read before taking any of these psychedelics was that they really do reveal a certain aspect of consciousness that is basically very difficult, if not impossible, to obtain without these sort of substances, except for intense meditation, pondering on your own. A lot of times people can, can have some of these revelations, but these substances provide, at least in my experience, an answer that I don't know if I would have been able to get or insight that I would have been able to get without them. Part of the reason you wanted to do this was to answer the question, what is consciousness? What is the definition you feel you were provided that was inadequate to you? I suppose I wasn't provided with, you know, growing up as a Catholic, leaving that at the age of 18, 19 when I went to college and sort of becoming an agnostic individual. I didn't have a good definition of, of consciousness. And I think that actually not having an answer, because, you know, I suppose in a certain sense the religious institutions offer you what is consciousness. Well, you know, you're attached to God, you are a servant of God, whatever it might be. Right, so, con- so in the in the church, consciousness is your spirit. Right. And so if you reject that religious definition, then you're trying to construct your own definition. Before my psychedelic experiences, I would tell you that consciousness is a byproduct of biochemical reactions in the brain. Mm -hmm. It's just something we experience that arises from the physical, material brain, and there's nothing else beyond it. Mm -hmm. After these psychedelic experiences, I no longer believe that. I believe it is some sort of pervasive force that is connecting all sorts of life forms and even inorganic matter. It, that is a very hard thing for me after I left the church, becoming agnostic, for me to, to grasp this sort of spirituality of consciousness. You know, as you mentioned, spirituality and consciousness for me, they start to come to a point where I believe they're basically the same thing. Your spirit or your consciousness, those are really synonyms. It reminds me a little bit of the Eastern concept of the Akashic field. Ancient wisdom traditions have said that there is a field beyond space and time from where the universe comes, the pre-created, which means before creation happens, but it's always there, it's eternal. Now, I've asked cosmologists what the latest theory of creation is. They say something like called eternal inflation, which means there are quantum fluctuations that will go on eternally. So universes will keep spinning out of this invisible domain forever into the future. But if you ask them, how about is eternal inflation possible backwards in time? And they say probably. So you can't say what is Genesis, because Genesis says there was a beginning. Now, you know, religious people say Genesis happened biblically whenever. And astrophysicists say 13.8 billion years. And you think, oh, because they're scientists, they're probably right. But how do you have a date when there was no time? There was probably no beginning. Okay, it is eternal, beyond space-time, infinite, 
giving rise to space and time. At least that's the view that I am proposing and it's not mine, it's part of many wisdom traditions. The Akashic field is the field of possibilities from where not only this universe but possibly infinite universes emerge and they're emerging, they're arising, they're subsiding and this is a domain of potential energy, information, space-time and the world of material objects. We can access this through transcendence again, we can abide in it, we can have a connection to it and it is my feeling that people who have intuition, insight, the so-called paranormal abilities, precognition, remembrance of other lifetimes, remote viewing, extrasensory perception, remote healing, these people have dormant, non-local potentials that exist in every human being. So it's this idea that we are a dynamic web of information and energy all hopelessly interconnected but manifested in such a way that we perceive ourselves as individuals. Right. Individualism is a drop of water, whereas this unity consciousness or God consciousness even, as some people have referred to it, is the ocean. Mm -hmm. And the experience of taking psychedelics feels like you are this individual drop. The psychedelic returns you to the ocean. And the ocean being united consciousness, Akashic records, that connectedness to all sorts of other conscious beings. For example, on one of my trips, I was in the Shenandoah Forest. I was standing out on, on this porch in this cabin that we rented, looking up at the stars, and I heard some rustling below the, the deck, and I looked down and it was, you know, a rather large black bear. And we looked at each other right in the eyes, and for a good 10 seconds we just sort of looked at each other, and I remember having the distinct feeling of being connected by consciousness to this animal. And it was really hard to describe afterwards, but when I saw this 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 bear, I thought, oh, that's like me. That is me. We are united. The consciousness itself takes different forms, whether it's a human being, a bear, a bird, all sorts of conscious life. It is the same central force. The, the spirit is the same in all animals. And the consciousness manifests itself differently because each animal has a different way of thinking or perceiving the world, you know, mm -hmm. like bats use sonar. We don't use sonar. So we have different ways of perceiving our, our, our reality. You know, we have our five senses and then other senses that people start to, you know, like the intuition has been viewed as a sense. Mm -hmm. So the material body has a unique way of perceiving reality, but at the core of it, there's this kernel of, I guess I'll call it truth, which is the consciousness that is pervasive in all life forms. Going back in time to when you first decided, this is something I'm interested in, this is something I'm going to try, how did you select the drug that you wanted to use to have that experience? In my research, I found that the psychedelic mushroom was said to be the most natural, the oldest hallucinogenic, because fungi have been on this planet much longer than we have. In fact, a diversion roughly 2 billion years ago would be one of our direct ancestors. So technically, we broke off 
and evolved on this totally different path than modern fungi. Mm -hmm. But if you trace it back, we do have a similar ancestor. I always think about that when we talk about evolution. We only go back to the earliest ape ancestor right. we can find. If you go back further, it was actually like armadillo-like creatures. And at some point, you have to find your way back to the amino acid. So you're saying mm -hmm. that we were originally fungi at some point in our evolution. At some point, yes. The fungi have been, they've just been here. And we could say maybe that they've been collecting data they've been the entire time they've been here. And so in a natural sense, it, that sort of appealed mm. to the scientific part of my brain. It's like, okay, here's this, this fungus. I, I understand evolution. So let's, you know, this is a natural substance. It's not made in a laboratory. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it grows. And so I thought, hmm, the, there doesn't seem to be any sort of negative physical effects. I've heard quite horrifying psychological effects. People have had very rough experiences with the psychedelic mushrooms, but I, that didn't that didn't scare me off. You do have to have a certain level of, I don't, I don't want to use the word bravery or courage, because I think that's a bit... You want to destroy the ship and run away, you coward. John Luke. If you were any other man, I would kill you where you stand. Get off my bridge. You have to be bold. I think you have yeah. to like go boldly yeah. forward as you use these substances. Listening to other people talk about it helps, gives you insight. What were some of these terrible experiences that pe people told you about? Well, a lot of it had to do with reliving childhood trauma. If, mm. if someone had a childhood trauma that, you know, as, as the mind, there's certain things that it, it doesn't want to confront, mm -hmm. too painful to confront. So it forces you to sort of experience these sorts of things. And I think that that's a, a real challenge for people, especially if it's we're talking about the darkest moment of someone's life and now they have to relive it. Mm -hmm. That is a serious barrier to entry with these sorts of substances. So I think a lot of the negative experiences go back to reliving a trauma. Some people would say they may have experienced demons or Satan himself or other extremely dark thoughts. The psychedelic mushroom in particular forces you to be very introspective. On a lot of these trips, you examine what could be perceived as your deepest flaws. And a lot of times we don't want to look at our deepest flaws. We don't want to think about them. But these substances show you your greatest trauma and your deepest flaws. And those are very, very scary things. Make a mistake, Murph. Make him stay, Murph. Don't let me leave, Murph. Don't let me leave, Murph. <laughs> no! 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 Now, what is your participation or culpability in shaping the experiences? These people who are experiencing traumas, are they experiencing them because they tend to be very pessimistic, negative people? Or is that 
a shared experience that everyone has. You're not in control of your brain chemistry. It's not lucid dreaming. When it comes to the psychedelics, rule number one is set and setting. Set being mindset, setting being your physical location, who's around you, the sights, the smells, the music. Those are incredibly important. For example, if you're at a a football game and you're surrounded by fans of a different fan base, maybe it's a, a rival team, and you're on extremely high dose psychedelics, that could be a pretty negative experience mm-hmm. because you're around people who just because there's a sport going on and there's a rivalry, there's some sort of natural animosity between people and mm-hmm. that sort of negative so do you start seeing like all of the Steelers fans as Satan or like it how, could how be. Does that, yeah. It could be, you know, <laughs> it, it, it could quite literally go that far. Huh. The feelings about your surroundings are amplified by a million. And so those sorts of things are within your control if you decide, okay, I've got these psychedelics. It's going to be a really intense experience. I don't want to be in public around people I don't trust Mm -hmm. because there is also a certain element of paranoia to these experiences. Going out in public can be very challenging, especially for a person like me. I consider myself an introvert. And so dealing with people can be exhausting. On these psychedelics, that's I, that view doesn't really change with strangers. If there's people that I know and love, and I'm doing psychedelics with them, that feeling is it amplifies whatever the setting or your feelings or your mindset is at the time. So it's incredibly important to go into these experiences optimistically, wanting to achieve some form of spiritual growth, but at the same time not expecting anything. You know, oh, I expect that I'm going to dissolve the ego and I'm going to achieve this and that. That's, I mean, you can do that, but it's actually better, I've found in my experiences, to go in with whatever happens, happens. I'm sure it's going to be a great experience so long as I stay positive. Hmm. And let's just let the events unfold and see what happens. Now, can that evolve over the course of your experience? When Cooper first gets plunged into the Tesseract, he basically loses his mind. He tries to communicate with Murph. He's unable to do it. He's completely apoplectic, and it's Tar's intervention that sort of pulls him out of it. I know you said some of these experiences are very short, but... Are you able to change the way you're engaging with the experience over the course of it, or is it static from start to finish? It's definitely not static, and I could almost describe to you a consistent roller coaster of emotions, what you can anticipate on a trip in terms of emotion, but I can't describe to you what you could anticipate in terms of experience. Obviously, emotion is a part of the experience, but you're going to be learning things, but there's a certain way that your feelings morph over the course of a trip. For example, when you first eat them, and if it's a mushroom, or smoke it if it's DMT, you you have a very brief sense of euphoria most times. This, wow, I've I've shifted into a new form of consciousness. Mm -hmm. Immediately following that, I have found there is, with the psychedelic mushrooms, we're talking roughly an hour and a half to two hours, with the DMT, roughly two minutes, because of how short, fast-acting smoking DMT is. You know, it's a five to seven minute in its complete trip. So after the sense of euphoria, which lasts briefly, 
you have this experience of anxiety and, and discomfort and it's it's not pleasant i will not i will say it is not at all pleasant this this period and then it sets the stage for relief after you move out of the anxious period then you get into this sort of you feel like you have a, the boundless mind. You feel like your thoughts can go anywhere. You have access to knowledge that you hadn't had before. And this is amplified by the, the anxiety that you just came out of. So it's like you have to be made uncomfortable. And in the anxiety is, is one of those times where you will be faced with the traumas or flaws that you perceive in your personality. That's not to say you won't think about your imperfections or whatever it might be in the more pleasant portions of the trip following this anxious period but basically every time i've taken high dose psychedelics the anxious period happens and then there's a release and then it's free thought and then you start winding down after you know two to three hours of free thought and you enter into this afterglow phase which is an extremely pleasant sober state and it's sort of your reward at the end of all of this i mean you know not to not to make this racy, but that sounds a little bit like the oxytocin released after a loving couple is intimate together. Is that sort of what it feels like? I would say so, yes. It's extremely pleasant. It's, it is relief. You're, you're very satisfied. It, you have completed the journey. I don't know if, if you know much about Joseph Campbell, but he was a mythologist who got really interested in Native American culture and that expanded to, to other mythologies. And over the course of his study, he came to realize that in mythology, as in life, we perceive what's known as the hero's journey. Mm -hmm. There's a set of trials and challenges to your being. That's why the sequel trilogy sucks. <laughs> there's true. no challenges. There's no, there's challenges. no hero's journey. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. 100% agree. And so each psychedelic trip I view as whether it's smoke DMT five to seven minutes or it's psilocybin mushrooms three to five hours, it is in itself a hero's journey. And depending on how it goes, so hopefully you've been you've stayed strong throughout the experience, you will reach some sort of realizations and this pleasant afterglow experience. And it's I'm telling you that that afterglow is the best that I've ever felt. And it really does feel like a reward for this whole journey that you've gone on in the past five minutes or the past hour, as I said, depending on the substance. That's really interesting. So in a sense, Cooper's afterglow is when he wakes up in the hotel room and he sees the hotel room, the uh, hospital, and he sees that humanity has been saved. It's this whole new world has opened up to him in the immediate aftermath of his experience. Exactly. And I think it's also important to note when Cooper goes to the sort of artificial world that they've built, that he's not entirely pleased with it. You know, he's like, I don't like mm -hmm. this feeling like I'm back where we started. Yeah. And so that's a realistic moment where he's like, okay, I've had these experiences and now I've, I've learned so much and, and the sort of filter is off. And you don't want to like, oh, wow, this is so great. You know, we've mastered gravity and we've got this fake nature in the houses and whatnot. He doesn't seem entirely content with that. And I will say there's an element to the psychedelics where now you're a truth has been revealed of some sort. On every trip, a new truth is revealed. And 
some of the truths aren't always pleasant. And that's true in anything. It's not just necessarily psychedelics, but truth sometimes. The truth that his daughter is 100 years old and about to die. Right. Yeah. So there is, while the afterglow is extremely pleasant, following the afterglow, coming down from that, because that itself lasts, it could last, you know, a night, it could last a couple days, but at some time you come down from that. It's almost like a secondary high or experience Mm -hmm. and when you come down from the afterglow you have some new knowledge that may or may not be depressing enlightening a lot of times it's a neutral feeling because it's both enlightening and depressing but there are these realizations that you make on these substances that aren't always pleasant you you come away with a lot of things but you can basically guarantee you're going to learn something about yourself reality or something else entirely. So at the end of Interstellar, Murph encourages Cooper to go find Dr. Brand, who has continued onto that planet unaware that humanity has been saved. And as the kind of launch bay doors are opening and he's getting ready to leave, you see this slight smile on his face. And in a sense, he is chasing another experience because he doesn't know how to integrate into the world as it is and so he wants something new something exciting maybe something transcendent like his experience in the tesseract so using psychedelics do you ever feel like there's a risk that you're going to chase the experience too hard i definitely think there are improper ways of taking this substance i don't think someone who would be taking high dose psychedelics every day would be seeing the sort of return that might be beneficial you have to be strategic with these substances you need a period of reflection on what each individual experience was in each experience you are given just throw out a number, six months of realization. What I'm trying to get at is you're given an immense amount of data. These experiences are, one way you could view them is a data dump. You're receiving so much knowledge that you don't typically receive in the normal state of consciousness that we exist in, that it takes a lot of time to go through these thoughts and process them. A lot of my psychedelic experiences I am still processing. They are so mysterious and so complex, and there's so much data. It's such a foreign, I might almost say it's an alien experience compared to everyday waking consciousness. Do you have the quantum data? Roger, I have it. I am transmitting and on all wavelengths, but nothing is getting out, Cooper. I can do this. I can do this. It's such complicated data to a child. Not just any child. What else? Oh, come on, Dad. Each trip is a unique experience. And maybe if, if you want, this would be a good time to sort of walk through my experience with DMT. Yeah, let's be- do it. Because there are specific realizations that I made on each of my three trips. When I smoked the so DMT... So explain, explain to folks first just sure. what DMT is. So DMT is dimethyltryptamine. It is a compound that 
is found throughout nature. Scientists are studying the mammalian brain, namely the mice brain, to figure out does it exist in us naturally? And the evidence is highly suggestive that it does. But it's not just produced in the brain. It's produced by the lungs as well and the liver. Our bodies are producing this molecule, but not just our bodies or other animals' bodies. Plants are producing them. For example, in the Peruvian Amazon, the chacruna plant, Psychotria viridis, contains a high amount of dimethyltryptamine, DMT, there are actually two kinds of DMT. There's 5-MeO-DMT and there's NN-dimethyltryptamine. For the purposes of our conversation, because of I have only have experience with NN-dimethyltryptamine, that's what I'm going to be able to talk about. Mm-hmm. And that's the one that we have found in nature. It is really everywhere in organic matter, whether plants, animals, you name it. It's in us, right? Terence McKenna, who is a well-known psychonaut, will refer to him, said that it's been named illegal. It's, it's an illegal Schedule One substance, but since we all have it, everyone's packing. <laughs> That's true. That would certainly make Quest Labs attempt to uh, screen you out of a job difficult, I oh, suppose. Yeah. Exactly. Very difficult. And the molecule itself is understood to be released at certain points take a human life, that are very traumatic and or enlightening. Like when I was watching Game of Thrones season 8. Yeah, huge. It's pumping into my bloodstream. Huge doses of DMT. <laughs> yeah. No, birth, death, other extremely traumatic experiences. In fact, some researchers believe that near-death experiences that folks have is in itself a DMT trip that the brain is under this sort of immense stress because you are dying, you are approaching death, and the molecule has been released. I'm sorry, I can't, I can't watch you go through this, I'm sorry. I thought I could, but I can't. I'm here, I'm here for you. This is in my voice, Cooper. I'm right here. You're not alone. Do you see your children? It's okay. They're right there with you. Did Professor Brent tell you that poem before you left? Do you remember? Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. If you look into near-death experiences and then you look into DMT experiences, they are interchangeable. They, They sound exactly the same. So what is a typical near-death experience if you had to encapsulate it with kind of like a general narrative? The typical narrative, and as I mentioned, this sort of applies for both DMT and the near-death experience, is there is some sort of trauma, as I mentioned at the beginning of a a psychedelic trip, there's this anxiety for a near-death experience. That would be whatever they're experiencing that's bringing them towards death. Mm -hmm. There is a sort of experience of being catapulted through a tunnel, you know, going towards the light. Don't go into the light, you know, that that cliche. 
And once you've gone through the tunnel and you've approached the light, you meet God and or some sort of knowledge. And in a near-death experience, you're often sent back. In the DMT experience, you come down from your high. Sounds very similar to Cooper's experience after the Tesseract collapses of being hurtled through the wormhole, except at the end of that experience wasn't God. It was just Saturn off in the near distance. Now, take an atheist with a near-death experience. Do they conjure experiences like that that simply don't include God, include this figure, or do they all sort of necessarily follow that same path? I'm sure people have had very unique experiences that don't follow the narrative that I just described, but it appears overwhelmingly that people do experience... Like 60-70% Probably, people, something yeah. like that. I think it was actually when they surveyed people who had had you know, either psychedelic experiences or near-death, they were both, as you just mentioned, around 60-70% of people would describe it as spiritual, hmm. regardless of past religious affiliation. The word itself, what we know of it and what you learn of it as you go through these things, it seems to be one of the only things that can really describe what you experience on these sorts of trips, is that it is, in a sense, spiritual. You, Your ego and your material, physical being has been reduced in your mind to nothing. You have been liberated from it, and now you are pure consciousness. That's how you feel when you're on these psychedelics, and that's how people report feeling while experiencing near-death experiences. It's interesting you use the word liberated there, because I would have to imagine for some people it's not liberating, but absolutely terrifying. Or do people almost uniformly give it that connotation of liberation? I think it depends on your perception, unique perception of the experience, or maybe the, if you've built up a whole intellectual structure of what these substances offer before it ever having taken it, sometimes it may not meet expectations or it's not, you know, something that you thought would happen and therefore you may have some other sort of response. But, you know, in my experiences... Yeah, so let's go through the first one. So, yeah. so how old were you? Where where did it take place? And then what was the experience? Sure. I, I think I, I want to start with, with DMT because that has been the most profound experience. I have, I have more experience with psychedelic mushrooms, but the DMT one is one that I, I think offered the most insight. I took this substance. I smoked it three times in mid-April of this year. So we're talking you know, three months ago. Still a relatively fresh experience. I had a, a friend who had been able to get some concentrated DMT wax, and we used a dab rig, which has a, a metal, I suppose you could call it a bowl. You take a, a dollop of the DMT concentrate. After heating up the metal bowl with a blowtorch, you then place the... the Jesus Yeah, Christ. it's intense. It's a really... The whole thing, start to finish... I was not prepared for blowtorch. Yes, ...is extremely intense. The method of ingestion, the experience itself, and trying to figure out what just happened is very intense. Intensity. It is such an intense experience. I've never had a more intense experience. But you get the bowl really hot with a blowtorch. Then you place the dollop of DMT concentrate, and it is immediately turned into smoke. And you inhale it through this water 
pipe, I guess you can call it. All rigs are different, but the same mechanism exists where you're burning this concentrate. I think some people smoke DMT crystals. I don't know how it is in its crystal form, but the, what we had received was concentrated wax. There's many ways of ingesting DMT. The Amazonians prefer to drink it in a shamanic setting in the form of ayahuasca with a combination of two plants found in the jungle, the chacruna plant and the vine of the dead, or Socotria viridis and Banisteria sapi, copy, is the, are the two plants. So they've somehow figured out by combining these two plants, it creates the effect necessary to have a DMT experience because the chacruna leaves contain DMT. But in my experiences, I smoked it. And smoking, the, the trip lasts five to ten minutes. With ayahuasca, it lasts three to five hours because of digestion. And they're, they're different experiences. I only have experiences with smoking the DMT back in April. Anyways, my friend took a big dollop of this concentrate. We got the rig going and I smoked it, had my first trip. The first trip was very interesting, very humbling. And the first trip is uncomfortable for me to talk about because I have to admit certain flaws in my character in order to talk about it. Because the first trip, what I experienced, well, let me backtrack and, and preface that these experiences can be perceived two ways. You can say, one, that the experience all arises from your brain. It's a physical process, you know, the materialist definition, the reductionist uh, definition of what this experience is. It's just a byproduct of neurochemistry. The second option, that is, it, it is truly a spiritual experience. Now, having been agnostic, when I'm not on these trips, I, I have a hard time dealing with faith. In order to believe the second option, this that it's a purely spiritual experience, you have to have faith because it's very hard to prove this. On the trip, you are convinced it's spiritual. You have no doubt this is a spiritual experience. So what are you what are you seeing on this trip? What, obviously, it's going to be incredibly hard for you to describe it visually or sonically or whatever yeah. to someone who hasn't experienced it like me. But to the extent that you could put it into words, what are you seeing and what are you hearing during this experience? Right. So something that is extremely pervasive in all DMT experiences is an experience of contacting beings that are sometimes human, sometimes not, and you are interacting with a conscious being that is separate from yourself that has knowledge and it wants to teach you. So when you say sometimes human, sometimes not, do you mean there's a person who looks physically human talking to you and in other times is it a disembodied voice? Is it like aliens or Exactly. A lot of a lot of people see reptiles or whatever you know it manifests itself in different ways and as you mentioned disembodied voice the thing about a psychedelic experience is you are receiving knowledge and you feel as though you're communicating with a, a being that has knowledge that you don't have but it is doing it telepathically you somehow have this knowledge but no one's talking you don't hear words you just have thoughts and the thoughts feel foreign, but somehow they have just been downloaded into your consciousness. Mm -hmm. And so 
on these experiences, once you reach this peak of the of the trip, you start being told things or informed of things. Sometimes you see faces or beings, and in in the second trip, as I'll as I'll get to, there there was an actual physical visual thing that I was able to see. So now there's some people who might say when you talk about telepathically these thoughts being put into your head someone could have the reaction of, well, that sounds like the Manchurian candidate. Are these parasitic beings, like, trying to take over your thinking? How do you know that what they're imparting to you is intended to be helpful? It it takes, you know, the word that I don't typically use, it takes faith. You have right. to, you would just have to believe in their intentions. The same way you would believe that your mother has your best interests at heart. You exactly. have to believe that these otherworldly beings have your best interest. Exactly. There's a sort of positive vibe, so to speak, that these beings are given off. You somehow just know that they want to give you the knowledge. They want to teach you. They, they, they love you. But your eyes are open? Yeah, they're open, but it's like nothing's happening. Try turning your head. I can't. Why not? I don't know. I can't move. So I don't. I just lie there in bed. Can you see your sister? No. But I can hear her. What is she saying? She's calling out my name over and over again. She's crying out for help. But I can't help her. I can't move. Are you scared? I know I should be, but I'm not. Do you know why? Because of the voice. The voice? The voice in my head. What's it telling you? Not to be afraid. It's telling me that no harm will come to her. And that one day she'll return. Do you believe the voice? I want to believe. For the purposes moving forward, I'm going to speak as though it was a spiritual experience because during the trip, that's what it felt like. Mm -hmm. And so these beings were communicating a sense of love to me. So getting back to my first trip, I, I smoked it. I didn't see much. DMT is a very visually active experience, as I'll, as you'll find as I describe the two subsequent experiences. But on this first one, I'm not sure if I didn't smoke enough or what it was. There was no visual aspect to it. Some sort of, I felt like there was a curtain in front of me, but I couldn't see it. I had this sort of distinct feeling that I was on the outside of a curtain, and it was just about to be lifted. But I also had this telepathic thought that entered my mind that told me you have certain unconscious biases there are certain stereotypes that you believe in whether or not it was from how you were brought up or what doesn't matter you have to overcome your unconscious biases about certain things certain people in order to progress forward with this experience if you don't you will not progress forward spiritually. You must come to terms with having an incorrect belief about certain things, a certain unconscious bias. You must come to terms with that before you can move forward. And that was sort of frightening. 
it was sort of humbling. It not sort of, it was humbling. And, and it also told me, and you can't just say you're over your unconscious biases. You can't just say, okay, I'm letting go of all stereotypes that I've believed in in the past, and now I want to grow spiritually. You have to really work towards improving your way of treating other people and interacting with other people in order to have true spiritual growth. So there really wasn't much of a, I mean, that experience was very trippy, but it wasn't a classic DMT trip. So there was some sort of roadblock, at least that was what I was told, to my spiritual development that I must overcome. So for two hours after that trip, I just contemplated some of my flaws, some of my beliefs that were either ill-informed Two hours of contemplating my flaws sounds it, like the worst thing yeah, in the world. Yeah, I mean, it's not exactly pleasant, but I wanted to overcome. And it, it had outlined specific things that I needed to overcome. And so I, I thought about them, thought about why I was wrong. And after a certain amount of time of contemplation, I told my friend who had originally obtained it that I was ready for round two. And this time, we loaded up a, a dollop. I'm just going to call it a dollop. That was probably three times the original one. Because I was like, all right, I'm trying to, I want to break through. That's a very common term in psychedelic experiences is breaking through. What you're breaking into seems to be a whole other realm. And so it, it is a great word for the experience. So two hours after that first trip, I'm ready for round two. This time totally different. I was about 10 seconds in to the to smoking it. I was still holding this water pipe and holding the smoke in my lungs for a longer amount of time. And I started to have this distinct feeling of of rising or 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 some sort of upward feeling and I looked at the ceiling and it was changing shapes it was morphing the there was a distinct pattern geometrical pattern on the ceiling that was morphing in all sorts of ways so almost like the tesseract in a sense and so it was as though the ceiling itself was turned into a tesseract and i had this strange thought that i was going to fall through the ceiling and i can't really i mean that's just what i felt i was looking at it and i felt like i was lifting up towards the ceiling i was like oh no i'm going to i'm going to go through i'm going to fall through the ceiling. The sense of gravity had been completely reversed. Up was down. That was really disorienting. And I was like, oh, okay, this is very strange. And then immediately following that, there was a multicolored tunnel. Picture a, 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 almost a wormhole that's multicolored and the, there's a pattern to it that is like windows or grid-like. And each window is a different color. And it creates this beautiful array of colors in this tunnel. And I'm looking at this tunnel and I'm thinking... And meanwhile, the reality, the house, the room that I was in is starting to melt. The walls are starting to become light and they disappear. And all that's left is this tunnel. Throughout these experiences, you still have an aspect of your consciousness that is like normal waking consciousness. So you're still able to refer back to your experiences, the people you know, at least with the doses that I've taken. My ego or waking consciousness hasn't been completely dissolved. So I'm thinking to myself, what is this? And all of a sudden, that same pulling that I got as I felt like I was pulled up to the ceiling pulled me into this this tunnel and I flew into this tunnel all of a sudden I was in a completely different space
it felt like I was in another realm, so to speak. Many people who have experienced mushrooms or DMT refer to it as the tryptamine realms because they're both tryptamines, a particular amino acid. So when you say realm, there's a lot of different definitions for that. There's like the New Age definition, there's realm in J.R. Tolkien sense. What does realm mean to you in this context? So refresh me, what is the, what's the New Age definition of realm? Oh, uh, I don't know about a specific New Age definition, but I guess I just mean is is realm just a way of saying that you felt like you were on like another spiritual plane? Is that the context you meant it in? Yes, yes. Uh, I, I think in this case, realm and dimension, to give it more of a scientific way of viewing it, uh, and it's definitely 4D+. plus. It's a different dimension. You are shifted into a different... It's going to be a great TV when they finally put it out. Oh, man. Absolutely. It's it's a totally bizarre, strange experience, wildly entertaining, and it is frightening. And you feel as though you've been shifted into another dimension. So dimension and realm interchangeable okay, in this situation. It. You're in this new dimension that is completely foreign. You've never seen anything like it. It's a material world that has a different law of physics is that almost what it feels like I, I i think so what i tell people when i'm describing this experience is that you do feel as though you've gone up a level in dimensions of space and time be it four or five dimensions and therefore the english language or any language conceived on this planet maybe sanskrit had was able to describe higher dimensions i'm not sure but m most languages pertain to strictly the th the 3d world that's what we've used language to describe but with this experience you're in a different dimension so 3d language almost can't describe it as think about the tesseract how can someone describe its changing shape and in the movie they sort of comment that it is 4d's folded into 3D so Cooper can interact with the, the Tesseract itself. Yeah, and you're talking about the, the sort of fifth-dimensional beings who are, of course, the mysterious saviors of the human race. Yep. And when you're talking about this other language, the reason they need Cooper is because they are so evolved that trying to find the correct moment in time to make this change is impossible to them. It's like a grain of sand. All of this is one little girl's bedroom. Every moment. It's infinitely complex. They have access to infinite time and space, but they're not bound by anything. They can't find a specific place in time. They can't communicate. That's why I'm here. I'm gonna find a way to tell Murph, just like I found this moment. How, Cooper? Love, Tars, love. It's just like Brand said. My connection with Murph, it is quantifiable. It's the key. What are we here to do? Find out, tell her. These fifth dimensional beings, or whether they're beings or not, or just this other state of consciousness, is struggling to find a way to communicate with you in a way that you understand. Absolutely. I, I can imagine... If you're a being of a higher dimension, it would be like us trying to describe something to an ant. How do we describe something to an ant? It has to manifest in different ways. A after moving into this dimension, I was confronted with a set of beings 
that did have a, a human, I felt like they were human as I was communicating with them, but I felt like they were ancestral humans. And as I was experiencing this realm, what I saw was planet Earth and specifically the continent of Africa and Australia. I saw them mentally, I saw them visually at times, but also just sort of in my mind's eye. I sensed those two continents. I, it's really hard to sort of describe, but for some reason I was thinking, okay, these beings are from, they are ancient humans from Africa and Australia. What I saw, how they manifested themselves, was in the form of tribal masks. You know, if you see African or Australian tribal masks that have white dots painted on them and you know, red paint. What was your exposure to, like, Native Australian or African culture before that? Is, is that the way they chose to communicate because that was actually a reference point for you, or was that something that you had very little knowledge or experience? I with? had very little knowledge, but it tied back to my first trip about my stereotypes. And as I overcame my stereotypes, it manifested in the way of the people that I had had, to be quite honest with you, stereotypes that I knew that I needed to overcome. And so when I was faced with these African faces, they said, look, we love you. We love you dearly. And we want you to know there is nothing to be afraid of when it comes to death. This is death. You dissolve, your body dissolves in the dirt or it burns, whatever happens. But that is inconsequential to the continuation of your spirit, your consciousness. And we love you for that. And that was such a euphoric thought to have. And I had this immense appreciation for the people of Africa and this sort of communication of love that I had never really experienced before. It was, it was such an intense feeling that I was convinced that they wanted me to, they wanted to alleviate the anxiety that most of us have of death. And they, that's, oh, that's all I think about. Like, yes. 70% of my day. <laughs> so, and, it, and I, I as well think about it frequently. And so that was my first big trip was, it's okay, it's fine. And it was almost, it was such a friendly, loving way of describing death. And it was so pleasant. It was so incredibly pleasant. And they were like, just don't worry about it. And isn't that why religion is so appealing to take Jesus Christ, no matter what you've done, don't worry, accept me, you're going to live forever. What could possibly be more comforting than that? And so that's where this element of faith comes in, yep. where you've had these experiences and you've decided intellectually that you're going to put faith in them. Now, is that because that's what you want to believe? Is that driven by you think you've made like an empirical conclusion based on evidence or, or what do you think is the thing that made you put your faith in it? I'm not really sure to be quite honest. Going in, I don't, it, it wasn't the belief that I had going in. I mean, we doing the psilocybin mushrooms to start, it's psilocybin mushrooms are not the same as a DMT experience. The DMT experience is un incomparable to anything else I've ever experienced. It is more intense than anything else I've ever experienced, including 2CP, a lab drug, and the psilocybin mushrooms. So I had had some sort of thoughts, maybe the consciousness continues, and that was absolutely reinforced on this trip. So it very well could have been my own psyche reinforcing that sort of belief. That is absolutely one 
option. Mm -hmm. But at the time, on these trips, you are convinced that what you're learning is not coming from your mind. It's coming from someone who has existed much longer than you have. And they're imparting the sort of wisdom that you could never get in daily life. I shouldn't say that. I don't like to say never because I'm, maybe there's you know meditation practices that can help you get there. I think it would take a lot longer than you know a shotgun blast from DMT into these spiritual realms. But I'm sure it's I'm sure it's, people can reach, reach these sort of enlightened states. In fact, maybe the Buddha had reached this sort of state, and that's why he made his realization. Mm -hmm. I mean, a, a Christian or a Jew might argue that these revelations through the psychedelic experience are the revelations that, say, exist in the Bible or the mm -hmm. Talmud or what have you. Would you make a distinction between those, or do you think they're similar? I think they're absolutely similar, and I actually believe, from what I've been listening to, people make compelling arguments that a lot of the religions and religious experiences may that that founded these religions may have been mediated by psychedelics to begin with especially in the ancient world where shamanism and in many places shamanism continues what shamanism really is is a facilitation of psychedelic experiences for the purposes of spiritual development now let's say you have these sorts of spiritual ex experiences it is not a stretch to see how a religion could evolve out of that mm -hmm. not at all so i believe that it, and, I, you know, not taking anything away from a religion, you know, some people who practice a religion may not want to think that at the root of it, the history of it could have been these sort of spiritual, psychedelic even experiences. And I mean, it's still up for debate, but there is a lot of a lot of really interesting evidence. You know, if we look at certain things, you know, some people think that Moses, the burning bush, was a representation of the acacia tree. In that region, there is a, a bush that has high concentrated DMT in it, and that for somehow he consumed this this DMT, this acacia tree, which mediated a conversation that he had with God about moral concepts. And that is, that is the story of Moses coming down from the mountain with these revelations that he may have actually been engaging in the use of uh, acacia tree, which is, as I mentioned, high in DMT. I mean, this still exists within the realm of speculation. And, I mean, I'm not saying this is exactly what happened. This is a very radical sort of alternate history. Yeah, I mean, well, what's, what makes antiquity so interesting and is because it's still very mysterious because there is no way to document things to the extent now. I have a problem with people that kind of demean Mormonism. Mm -hmm. And the reason they do it, I think, is because we have a recency bias where it's like, well, that was only 150 years ago, so yep. we know God wasn't here then. Whereas 2,000 years ago, the records are much more sparse, and so people are able to have a little more imagination right. about what might have been possible. There's more mystery mm -hmm. surrounding it. Certain things would be hard to prove. And so with the faith or what we want to believe or however it manifests itself. And yeah, and it's not just limited to religious beliefs. I mean, you have, you know, that's how history channel two's ancient aliens has thrived because we just can't know these things. So we're all interpreting this art these artifacts in the way that either makes the most sense to us or in my case probably is the most entertaining.
and we're all led to believe, oh, it's all coincidence, it's all just fantasy. Rubbish. Something happened, and in the case of the Stargate, it is possible that this sun disk had some type of an extraterrestrial connection and that this was a technological device with which to travel. So that was trip one. Yeah. You kind of just went through trip two, didn't right. you? Right, yes. Yeah, that was the same day. So the, Yes, so trip one, limited visuals, the realization that I had unconscious biases that I had yet to overcome. And I, it's not that I hadn't been working towards them. I was aware of them coming out of, you know, the sort of childhood that I had, how I was raised, that I had these sort of beliefs that were incorrect that I needed to overcome. After I had pondered, thought about it, reflected, I was ready for trip two. And that's when I encountered this tunnel that I shot through, entered into a new dimension, and interacted with ancestral Africans and Austronesians. I mean, that's the, I, somehow I just knew that's where they were from, and that's, I just knew that's who they were. We're talking thousands and thousands and thousands of, of years old, these, these beings, that, that had this knowledge of death. And they were so calm and loving in their articulation of what death is, as in this dissolution of the material body, but the continuation of consciousness into new spiritual experiences in higher dimensions, and that I needed to, re to relax because there's a lot of death anxiety that I carry with me and that a lot of people carry with me, you know. My dad has fought off two forms of cancer. And so death is on my mind frequently after experiencing that and knowing that he had battled that. And, and, I, and that happened when I was a teen. So I, I still have dreams about, you know, something happening to my family members. And it's horrifying. It's very jarring when you get to the place in your life where the world begins to take things away from you mm -hmm. as opposed to bestowing things upon you. Yeah, my father, having died last year, my father actually died the same week as my grandmother. And so I was in the hospice with my grandmother, got the call that my father's cancer had taken a turn for the worse. And so then the day she died, I was on a plane going back to, to be with my father and what have you. And so that definitely changes the game because my grandfather i was very close to him he was deeply important to me but he was over 90 years old mm -hmm. and so you have this sense that this is coming but with my dad i had this unshakable faith that the world would not take away from me early what i felt i deserved to have for much longer mm -hmm. and so when i lost him that really brought the reality of death to my doorstep. I thought of all of the things that he did not get to do that he wanted to. And I started to think about all of the things that I wanted to do and how precious few of them I've done. And so that's really terrifying. There's the sense that we're all on the clock and you don't want to live your life hyper aware of that because you're going to be absolutely miserable but if you lose complete contact with that idea then it becomes very easy to be complacent and sort of just drift through the world absolutely it, it really is it's it's the single most frightening thought or concept you know that there's a potential that when we die it is nothing it's as it, it's as what we knew before we were born which is nothing right but on this experience during the experience i was convinced that 
it, it, it isn't nothing. There is a, it, it can be pleasant, it can be negative, but I got an overwhelmingly pleasant feeling about the concept of a next step, a leaving behind almost of, because at the time during this trip, I had felt as though my consciousness, spirit, whatever you want to call it, had left my body. I had left it entirely. And I actually had the thought that it was kind of a strange thought, but it wasn't negative. I thought, you know, what if I just stopped breathing and I just left my body behind? I would still exist like this. And so I felt completely separate from my body and I could feel myself breathing, but I thought, well, I feel like if I stopped, I would still be in this dimension. And that's what these African tribal beings were articulating to me as well, that you're in the next realm. This is what death is. When you die, this, and they didn't explicitly state this, but this is how I see it in the context of, as we talked about the near-death experiences. When you die, this massive amount of DMT facilitates the exit of your consciousness from the material physical body this flesh vehicle that the consciousness occupies on this on this beautiful garden planet that we live on and and you exit it in the next phase also they communicate that there's a high likelihood that you continue to go through spiritual challenges and you evolve until you become god but you're already part of god so it's like this this beautiful development of your spirit into the ultimate form our lives are not our own. From womb to tomb, we are bound to others. Past and present. And by each crime and every kindness, we burst our future. And that kind of takes me into the third trip, which was different than the first two. On the third trip, the disembodied consciousness that I was telepathically interacting with man that sounds wild <laughs> that sounds really crazy but at the time that's and still that's how i that's the only way to describe it so i i, I can say that again the disembodied consciousness that i was telepathically interacting with yes somehow this an, a separate consciousness from my own was communicating knowledge to me non-verbally 
I, I knew there was a presence and it was communicating with me, but I heard no words. I, it was communicating to me in complex ideas. That was a devil, boy. <laughs> it, it, it communicated in complex ideas. Uh-huh. It, entire concepts were downloaded into my into my brain instantaneously. Like, uh, like Neo in the Matrix. Download Kung Fu Fighting Program 2.5. Exactly. It, it, the Matrix is an incredible analogy for what I experienced on these psychedelic trips. It is the best analogy. And as I told you before, the way that the movie, the matrix makes the most sense within the context of psychedelics is to believe that the red pill that Morpheus offers Neo at the beginning before he's decided what he's going to do is the psychedelic. And it will reveal to you the simulation, the simulation being what we know as the three dimensional reality. And once you see beyond the three-dimensional reality, when you see what life is, it can be unpleasant, it can be pleasant. You know, there's certain aspects to the real world as they know it in the Matrix after taking the red pill. But the red pill really, and I don't know if this is intentional from the creators, but the red pill itself, when I watch that movie, I'm like, wow, this is incredibly similar to a psychedelic trip. And that Neo has been offered this psychedelic of some kind which shows him oh yeah the uh, simulation the 3d simulation which plays into my third trip again where i was communicating with some sort of disembodied consciousness as i mentioned it was downloading concepts into my brain whole concepts and it was interesting because it wasn't supply side economics yeah exactly (laughs) it it wasn't i will say it didn't seem as loving it was a bit aggressive in a sense it had this sense that it had something to communicate with me and it needed to get it out fast and it needed me to take it seriously. That's the vibe I got. And and the experience was, so I smoke it. Again, I look up at the ceiling and you know the, the popcorn ceilings or whatever, the, the ceiling where it's like a, there's like a rough pattern on it yeah, yeah, yeah. and you kind of want to like scrape it off and mm-hmm. it's kind of annoying. Well, so that, those sorts of ceilings give you a basis for a great visualizations because patterns just form in those ceilings naturally i'm looking up and within five seconds of taking this hit i'm looking up at the ceiling again and meanwhile the walls are starting to become light again it sounds yeah it sounds very similar to the tesseract in that on the other side of the bookshelf you have those rushing bands of light the world lines going past exactly and you can think of those lines as kind of what appears in reality and once you're at the peak of the trip it doesn't really matter if your eyes are opened or closed you're gonna see this other right and so in, in the in the with the tesseract what you're perceiving with the rush of of light i guess is different times and dimensions overlapping and that was sort of the limit of what they were able to visualize for cooper so they were giving him some visual input that wasn't necessarily meaningful to him but they couldn't distill it any further than that yes i think it's very similar in our case i mean that the tesseract is such a great example in so many ways but i think as you just mentioned if we are truly interacting with higher dimensional beings, which I, I'm not going to lie, I'd, if I had to choose one or the other, I would say I believe that we are on these on these substances. It It is so compelling when you're on them that if you're on them and someone tells you this is just part of your mind, you would be like, no, I'm, I'm, exp- I'm talking with something that's not myself. Like this is a higher being that has much greater knowledge and they have to, I don't want to say dumb it down, but they have to reduce it into a way that 
we can understand. And so in this third trip, again, I'm catapulted into this dimension. And there's sort of two trips. You're given so much data over the course of a trip that you probably only come back with 30% of it. But the two main things that I came back with was all of a sudden I'm with another consciousness and it's like, it's showing me the human brain, it's showing me neurons, and it's showing me genetics. I, I'm a lover of science. I absolutely love science. I think it's a beautiful process of trying to understand reality. And I love genetics and neuroscience. I think they're very complex, very interesting. Genes are our code within the simulation that is expressed and you become a human when the when the amino acids it's all are, binary yeah it's it's and and so i saw the genetics and it told me you think this is what it said it was a bit condescending it said it said you think genetics and neuroscience neurochemistry is complex you have no idea what complexity is look at this four-dimensional shape look at what i'm showing you this is extreme complexity that genetics or the brain, these extremely complex things and that we know in reality are quite simple, comparatively speaking. And it said, when you're looking at three-dimensional structures or things, always know that there's something deeper behind them. There's a fourth, fifth, sixth dimension to whatever you're seeing. But because you are a three-dimensional being, you will be limited to how far you can see it unless you're on psychedelics. It's the, the scene on Miller's planet when they're stranded and Doyle has just died. Is there any possibility? I don't know. Some, some clever way we could maybe, I don't know, jump in a, in a black hole. Came back to years. Don't shake your head at me. Time is relative, okay? It, it can stretch and it can squeeze, but it can't run backwards. It just can't. Right? The only thing that can move across dimensions like time is gravity. The beings that led us here, they communicate through gravity, right? Yes. Could they be talking to us from the future? Maybe. Okay, if they can. They are beings of five dimensions. Right, to them, time might be another physical dimension. To them, the past might be a canyon that they can climb into and the future, a mountain they can climb up, but to us, it's not, okay? Cooper, I screwed up. I'm sorry. But you knew about relativity. We really are limited by our three-dimensional view of reality, but these substances and death itself allows you to transcend that. Now, there's also a certain element, and, and, I've, and I've had these experiences on DMT as well as psilocybin, where it kind of ties into the concept of karma, that if you don't develop spiritually or you do things to hurt others or hinder their spiritual development, you may stay in the third dimension for another round or maybe even drop down into a lower frequency. But that development is all about... I don't know if I could go to a lower frequency than this. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, that, that would be, quite honestly, that's what hell is, I think, is going down a level, if we want to say it like that, or going down from 3d to 2d i mean 3d already is knowing that there could be much greater complexity above us in higher dimensions and i say above figuratively it's more of like turning a dial to a higher frequency mm -hmm. knowing that you're convinced on these substances that death is a release into the higher dimensions so 
in when I'm interacting with this disembodied consciousness, the alien, it doesn't have that same human vibe and it doesn't have with it so much of that loving feeling that the African tribesmen <laughs> imparted to me in, in trip number two. If you, if you had to assign an actor to portray this condescending being, who would you select? Uh, Seth Rogen. <laughs> Good Absolutely. All right, you Condescending know Seth Rogen. If Seth Rogen tries to give me the secrets of the universe, yeah. my mind is shutting off. I'm not <laughs> going to listen to anything that's, Seth Rogen has to tell me. That's a really interesting question. I had never even thought about like assigning, like, because... It didn't feel human, but there was some sort of, like, funny condescension to it, but it was still sort of aggressive in a way, and it seemed to just have an immense amount of information that it knew that I had no concept of. So it starts talking about how 3D is nothing compared to higher dimensions. It starts talking about the simplicity of genetics in the brain. And then it entered into what I think is the most bizarre aspect of any of my trips and i don't have any explanations for it i'm gonna tell you what i was i guess told and it makes no sense at all i don't know how to just i mean we can debate what what was going on i i have no idea after they told me about the simplicity of genetics and neuroscience i visualized the pyramid at giza and i'm, I'm infatuated with the pyramid to begin with oh, I, of course it is such a mysterious I need to go there and see this. I, it's going to be like a pilgrimage. I am just blown away by the sorts of engineering that that whoever built it was able the to. The reticulants. The reticulants, yeah. whoever it was. <laughs> and I'm, I see the pyramid, and it's set across, in the background, picture, you know, when Coop is out in space and there's all the stars, and it's just a gorgeous view. And then the pyramid itself is floating in space. And I'm looking at the pyramid, and all of a sudden, a purple beam of light shoots out the top of the, the pyramid. And I can see this, this like, taking place. I think this might be an episode of Thundercats. <laughs> <laughs> purple beam of light out the top of this pyramid. Then around the middle of it, right in the middle, there's a, a green ring. You know how when a nuclear, when a mushroom cloud forms and there's that ring? Mm -hmm. So imagine like that kind of a ring, but instead of, you know, smoke or cloud or flame, it's a green laser ring, a thick laser ring around the pyramid, making a perfect circle. And I see this, I'm like, what is going on with the pyramid? Then the pyramid starts spinning on its axis incredibly fast. And I'm like, what, is, what am I looking at? This makes no sense. And my first question is, to this disembodied consciousness that I've been interacting with. I was like, okay, who built that? Like, what is that? What am I looking at? Who built these things? Because the engineering is, from all evidence, not something that the Egyptians could have... I mean, there's a lot of speculation. Oh, maybe they made the sand wet and they dragged the granite blocks 50 kilometers. And To me, it's very hard to believe that the Egyptians built these. I think they're much older. And so I, now, just to be honest, I had that knowledge going in. Mm -hmm. Right then, that viewpoint. I think they are much older than the Egyptians. I think the Egyptians inherited, just like they inherited the Sphinx, and we know the Sphinx is much older because of the uh, weathering patterns. The weathering patterns that Robert Schock detailed to us in the early '90s. So we know the Sphinx is older, and then therefore, how do we not know that the pyramids are much older than five thousand five hundred years or whatever? They're you know they're dating it to three thousand five hundred BC or mm -hmm. whatever the conventional dating has been. We know that Egyptologists are wrong about the Sphinx. Could they also be wrong about the pyramids? I think so. I think this engineering is way beyond something that was possible at the time. So that's my mindset going in. 
So I ask, okay, who built these? Was this some prior human civilization or what? Who built these structures? <laughs> and the consciousness laughed and it said, these structures have always been here. Your ancestors' ancestors were asking the same questions. No one knows who built them. And that is, that is a confusing answer. That is something that... If this is a being in five dimensions who transcends time... Why would it not know who built these? Exactly. That's my thought. That's precisely my thought. And when it happened afterwards, it almost reduced the credibility of the experience. I'm like, okay, if this is some great consciousness that's supposed to know everything, how does it not know who built these structures? But as I think about it, I wonder, and this kind of gets into a sort of simulation theory, what if it was in the original code of the simulation? What if these structures, as we now know there's structures on Mars, in the, the moon of Mars, they found like obelisks, and what if these structures were somehow part of the landscape, you know, something encoded in the original code and they're just here? And I know that sounds insane, but the more I think about it, I, I wonder, I'm like, who, who, would, who, who built these? You know, these almost spiritual, I'm sure when, when I see them, I'm just going to be moved to tears because it is such an incredible structure. And it's like, how did humans conceive of this? So taking those two ideas, so this belief that the pyramids have been here from the beginning, but at the same time you hold these beliefs about the age of the universe that are more like traditionally scientific and like human beings came from fungi. So yeah. how could the pyramids have already always been here at the same time as those other things are true? Exactly. And that's really the hard part that I'm having with understanding what the consciousness was trying to to tell me about these pyramids because we have the scientific knowledge and science would say okay that makes that's crazy talk that makes no sense what do you mean they've always been here and to this day i still think that i i don't understand what it was trying to say but it it was very clear in what it said no one knows who built them your ancestors ancestors asked the same thing every every human has wondered who built them in a way it's a similar explanation as some people in the Christian community who are biblical literalists, they're trying to square scientific concepts with that biblical literalism. So there's the theory that the reason the light in the universe is the way that it is is because 6,000 years ago, God put the light exactly where it was or what have you. So with the simulation theory too, it seems like we're taking concepts we're comfortable with and just bending them to integrate with another set of concepts that we want to work with it. But are yeah. they actually compatible? Yeah, no. I mean, the pyramids always existing and scientific paradigms, it's very hard to reconcile. A lot of cultures, a lot of mythological traditions include this idea of the trickster. Mm. Have you ever considered that whether it was the Seth Rogen voice or the African voices are relaying to you the incorrect information? Have you considered that possibility? Yeah, I, I have, because there are lots of reports, as you said, a jester or a trickster, and it very well could have been that. It was humorous but it was also not loving 
and it very well could have been trying to convey some sort of incorrect knowledge that's bought and then that calls into question everything that i had been told right sort of just this idea of as a cosmic being yeah how do you manifest humor by screwing with the tiny little 3d people who are yeah. begging for my knowledge <laughs> yeah no yeah. exactly and it's i mean it's an opportune moment to take advantage of a three-dimensional being yeah. being in these extremely vulnerable states and then that raises the question of good and evil i think we have this sense that we can only evolve transcend and transform if we're inherently good but who decides what good is what evil is obviously human beings neanderthals homo sapiens were killing each other mercilessly throughout history by modern standards we might call that an act of evil and then yet the human race continued to evolve so mm. where do you see that element of classical good and evil playing into transcendence i absolutely think that there's some sort of light energy dark energy i think that you know to put it in star wars terms you know the energy the sith is, is channeling is some sort of dark energy mm -hmm. jedi channeling the light or the force right and when you're on these you do have a sense of good and bad energy you ever hear the tragedy of Darth Plagueis the Wise? No. I thought not. It's not a story the Jedi would tell you. It's a Sith legend. Darth Plagueis was a dark lord of the Sith, so powerful and so wise. He could use the Force to influence the midi-chlorians to create life. He had such a knowledge of the dark side, he could even keep the ones he cared about from dying. He could actually save people from death. The dark side of the Force is a pathway to many abilities some consider to be unnatural. What happened to him? He became so powerful. The only thing he was afraid of was losing his power, which eventually, of course, he did. Unfortunately, he taught his apprentice everything he knew then his apprentice killed him in his sleep. It's ironic. He could save others from death, but not himself. Is it possible to learn this power? Not from a Jedi. It, it, it's like... A feeling. It's not so much. Oh, they made that decision. That's a good decision. It's it's a it's like okay. This is you can feel this frequency of energy. It feels good, or you can feel this and it feels sinister. For example, now, are there some people who the affinity would be different for? For you, you're getting a good vibe off this being, but someone else might get a bad bad vibe off the being. Or do you think it's more black and white than that? 
I'm not sure. If I had to make an assertion, I would say it's it's black and white. And then there's a lot of in between. There's being where it's like, wow, that's a being of light. Wow, that's a being of the darkness. And most of us are somewhere in between. Yeah. And we may even go back and forth. But at that moment, this being is of pure positive or negative yin yang energy. And I will say on the third trip, one visualization that I haven't been able to also come to terms with was this, and this maybe was the embodiment of the voice, was this sort of sneaky being. It, you know, you know, Venom, how he, when he gets on all fours, the, the character Venom oh, from yeah, Spider-Man? Yeah, yeah, of course. So I saw that character, but instead of the typical, you know, classic Venom face, it was an all white face with black lipstick and black circles on its face and it was very sinister but did it you meet marilyn manson i didn't i didn't <laughs> it was it was it what it i got a sinister vibe from it but it wouldn't come close to me it just sort of stayed at the periphery and i definitely sensed a negative vibe coming from it but it didn't approach me unless it was that disembodied voice but that this is like sneaking creature around the edges of my perception while I had shifted into a different uh, dimension. Have you ever heard of the Hat Man? I haven't heard of the Hat Man. Okay, so it's sort of an offshoot of the Shadow People. I don't know if you're familiar with them. It's in a lot of Native American cultures, but now it's pretty much just a widely reported phenomenon throughout the world today. People that are home by themselves that see shadows at the edge of their vision and feel they have a malevolent presence. That one to me is pretty easy to explain away as the mind playing tricks on it. But what some people experience and what I've experienced before is sleep paralysis accompanied by a tall two-dimensional figure, a tall lanky man in a fedora uh, standing at the end of your bed or somewhere nearby staring at you and you just have this overwhelming sense of the evil emanating from this being and you can't do anything because you're paralyzed. The being that I saw, I got that vibe, it was smiling. Which made it, which made it infinitely, which made it infinitely more disturbing. And it had a human smile. I need a cough button. Oh man, I don't like that. It was smiling, but it was not pleasant. And I, I basically, I just looked at it, and my thought, and I don't know if if it worked or what, or if this was even just a figment. My thought was, you're not like you're not gonna be able to touch me. Like you're you're, you're a negative, lower frequency being. I'm not gonna buy into the fear that you're trying to induce in me. And at that point, it, it couldn't get any closer. Like it was, if if we were trying to put this in a 3D concept, it would have been trying to estimate depth perception get, guessing its size would have been like 10 to 15 feet away and it didn't move any closer to me within this dimension but it's it was on its all all fours with this white face and this strange venom like body and it was smiling at me and it was such a disturbing smile and it was just like it, it was really freaky and that was that was one of the last things that i saw on that trip and again that was the trip with 
genetics and 3D reality is nothing, and the pyramids have always existed, and then this sort of sinister smiling being. And something about it smiling made it infinitely more sinister than if it wasn't smiling. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, and it was it, it was extremely creepy. But That's I why I never found that guy in No Country for Old Men scary at all. People are like, oh, he's so cold or whatever. I find it much more frightening when someone is taking an active enjoyment in whatever they're doing. Oh, absolutely. That's just a man with a mental health problem. He's not like pure evil. Yeah. No, absolutely. It's I can't remember. There was this film back in the '30s that was. I cannot remember the name of the film. It was a horror film, and it was about a, a man who couldn't stop smiling. Mm. And he smiled the entire movie. And he had this pasty white skin, and he was actually an inspiration for the Joker character. Once Conrad Veidt and Paul Lenny became associated with the project, The Man Who Laughs was no longer an imitation Lon Chaney film. It became something wholly unique. Drawing from his own design experience, Lenny envisioned a shadowy, haunted world worthy of his expressionist background, superbly accomplished by art director Charles D. Hall, who would later design the sets for Dracula, Frankenstein, and the old dark house. In many ways, The Man Who Laughs laid the groundwork for the universal horror films that would soon follow. Films that established the horror movie genre and set the aesthetic standard for decades to come. But the concept of always smiling through sad moments, happy moments, fearful moments, is just disturbing. Because a smile is, a human smile is something that's somewhat precious. We're trying to articulate whether, I mean, sometimes people fake smiles all the time, right? But yeah. a genuine smile is, is something that is, I think, really valuable. Trying to articulate a sort of, uh, you know, the enjoyment or appreciation of someone's presence and to have a malevolent viewpoint and be smiling is just so disturbing. Is he, not to get too specific here, yeah. is he smiling with teeth? Does yes. he have like a venom-like mouth? No, no, no. It's a human mouth. Human mouth, black lips, human. white face, black eyes, black eyeliner, I suppose you could say. His features, he had a, imagine just a, a extremely white face, like actual face paint. I'm going to get you together with a sketch artist, and then we'll use that as the thumbnail yeah. for this episode. It was an extremely toothy <laughs> grin, like the Joker's. It was like the grin of a Joker. Um, and when you... Maybe now, Stan Lee had a psychedelic experience with all this fucking venom. Hey, uh, it's absolutely yeah. possible. You know, I remember... I can't remember who I was listening to, but they were talking about the history. Not to divert too much, but they were talking about the history of some of the comics that came out in the 60s and that a lot of those writers were potentially using psychedelics and, and getting these sorts of um, experiences because in Black Panther, you know, they have the flower of the ancestor that they, mm -hmm. that they drink and then they're able to be elevated to the ancestral plane. That's mm -hmm. a psychedelic experience if I've ever heard one. Mm -hmm. And so that psychedelics may have influenced those, those comics. But back to this, this being, I don't know. The, 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 when you bring up the jester concept, it very well could have been that. I mean, it did have this mischievous but also very sinister vibe about it. But it didn't approach me because I wouldn't let fear enter into the experience. I, I went boldly. I said, no, I'm not buying into And I thought, I didn't say anything, but I thought, I'm not buying into this. I'm not going to fall prey to this sort of fear on this trip. And so it, it, so it was there for a second and it was gone. But I definitely saw it just sneaking around, smiling. Really disturbing. So your experience concludes 
you talk about how then you basically spend the next six months trying to reflect on it. What do you take away from that third experience? Confusion, really. The the pyramid thing. So I agree completely, having experienced psychedelics several times now, about the simplicity of three dimensions and that there is something beyond three dimensions, fourth, fifth, etc. So when it was articulating that to me, it gave it a certain amount of credibility. And I was like, yes, I, I mean, this is something that I agree with, that there's higher planes. I mean, on my second trip, that's what the Africans, if we want to say that, had communicated to me that there are additional planes, three dimensions, just the start, no fear, very loving. The third one, you know, talking about this. So these beings said that they loved you. Yeah. The thread that connects everything in Interstellar is this idea that love is something quantifiable, an artifact of a higher dimension that we're not consciously perceiving. Do you think that that's true based on your experiences? Yeah, I do. I think love and consciousness and good vibes, good energy are really the same thing. I So love is frequencies that are simpatico? What is love? I think love is a recognition of the consciousness of another being and this sort of conscious connection that that's love. When you connect with someone or when you have a, an appreciation for them and their consciousness or what it provides to your consciousness... But not in a selfish way. I think I think that's love. So we think about what do people love? Well, they love other people. They love foods. They have some sort of connection to this this mm-hmm. meal. Maybe it's deeply personal. Maybe they just really like it. You know, mm-hmm. it's like thinking about what people love. It's a connection, and that's what consciousness is when you recognize this connection. Going back to my mushroom trip, when I saw this bear and I understood it as a conscious being such as myself and felt this intense connectivity to it, I also, in parallel, if not the exact same thing as the consciousness, was this feeling of love towards it. I absolutely loved this bear. <laughs> I had never met or a bear. I never interacted with a bear, you know. Yeah. But at the time, I was like, wow. Wow, I'm, this bear, I love this bear. It's like I feel that me. way when I watch Coke commercials around Christmas time. Yeah, <laughs> the the polar bears. <laughs> yeah, I love those yeah. polar bears. And so I felt, you know, I felt this intimate connection as like a, a, a family or like a. It's not even that because it's like you feel one. Like love is feeling one with something. Maybe it's a very mysterious force, and it just like an interstellar. It, it goes across time and space. So that's something I want to hit on, this idea of individuality versus if we're all part of a shared consciousness, is love then not self-serving? Are we not just loving ourselves? Because ultimately, you and your girlfriend, you're conscious beings in the way that you're moving through the three-dimensional world. But if we're ultimately part of a shared consciousness... Is that just ego, or are you just loving yourself in a sense? I think that the self and ego are the same thing as... When consciousness is put into a body, into an individual, an ego is also included in... It's how we move through three dimensions, through the use of this individualism and the ego. The psychedelics dissolve that. And therefore, you realize there is no self. Everyone is part of one. Everything is one. So to love your, yourself almost doesn't make sense in that concept. You're loving the unity of everything. 
Mm-hmm. So love is the unity of, of things, the unity of everything. So the, the idea of individualism almost breaks down. And then when you come down from these trips, you return into a state of an individual. But the beauty of specifically psychedelics is this sense of unity. I don't get the sense of, of unity as much with the DMT. DMT is more about going elsewhere and receiving extremely foreign knowledge. You extreme for, you experience and learn f- new knowledge on the psychedelic psilocybin mushrooms but there is more of a of a unity experience with the mushroom and and in that sense it is a a pleasant aspect of it i think that's in a sense the ultimate faith proposition you have to decide that unity itself is inherently meaningful Mm -hmm. do you think it's possible to go to through these experiences and conclude that it's not I think you can absolutely go through an experience, come out and believe whatever you want. They're very convincing, but even then, people can come out and just write it off and say, just a figment of my imagination. Yeah, I don't really want to do that again. What if you believed in the experience that you had? So if you take what I've experienced as real, is it possible to come away from that rejecting what you've seen like i do not like what i have just realized about the interconnectedness of people i don't think so (laughs) i think if you're open to the concept of unity at least in my experiences if you're open to that concept in most of my trips i've experienced that concept it validates the belief in that concept it's extremely validating none zero of my psychedelic experiences have I come away with I'm an individual the exact opposite is what I personally and I can't speak for everyone else but personally going into it believing I am an individual now after these trips I no longer believe that entirely I believe that there is some sort of connectedness beyond the individual it's a very collectivist idea and you see that in interstellar the scene when professor brand is talking about confronting the reality of interstellar travel we have to think as a species Mm -hmm. not individuals cooper says mankind wasn't born on earth it was never meant to die here but at the same time cooper is an individual all he really cares about is saving his daughter and the fact that he is so inward focused is kind of like a demonstration of the connection between him and Murph. Do you think that there's something lost when we reduce our sense of individuality? Is there a risk in that? That's a great question. Uh, I don't know how to answer that, to be quite honest, because coming away from my experiences, the benefits of realizing the interconnectivity of things greatly outweigh the concept of your ego. The ego almost seems very basic and simplistic after you experience interconnectivity. And you almost don't want to return to that form. You you almost want to stay the drop in the ocean, and now you are the ocean. Because after a psychedelic experience, you go back to being the drop. And you felt like you had so much more knowledge and love and and just more of everything and connectivity as the ocean on this trip. Then you go back to this individual. Gainer, it is very important that you tell me everything that you know. 
We think that Soren has developed a weapon. A terrible weapon. One that might even give him enough power to destroy him. Soren doesn't care about weapons or power. He just cares about getting back to the Nexus. What's the Nexus? The energy ribbon that destroyed that ship was not just some random phenomena traveling through the universe. It's a doorway to another place that we call the Nexus. And it's a place I've tried very, very hard to forget. What happened to you? It was like being inside joy. As if joy was something tangible and you could wrap yourself up in it like a blanket. And never in my entire life have I ever been as content. And then you were beamed away from that. Pulled. Ripped away. None of us wanted to go. And I would have done anything, anything to get back there. I think that individualism, if we want to, you know, look at the simulation theory and maybe there is some sort of grand spiritual design to it, it is a spiritual test. The individual's job then in the simulation may be to realize its interconnectivity with everything and that's potentially how you transcend into the higher levels at a higher consciousness realizing that we are connected by consciousness itself and so you're forced into this physical body in a tough world you know life can be very challenging as you mentioned when things start especially when things start being taken from you as an individual but at the higher levels and on these substances that interconnectivity sort of alleviates those and minimizes individualism in a sense. You see it you see it as okay, like I have a body and I and I have an ego, but I'm so much more than that and everyone is so much more than that and you have this sort of free will where you can decide am I going to be an energy uh, being of high frequency or am I going to be a, a, a being of low frequency and that is the power that is the power that we have as individuals you decide do you want to be a high or low frequency being and that decides the level of your interconnectivity this is the sort of knowledge that the psilocybin mushroom has given me i mean i had these sorts of thoughts on dmt but definitely not as much as the psilocybin i think human beings inherently have a thirst for knowledge, a pioneering spirit. There is always somewhere a little more west to explore. Mm -hmm. What you're describing as a five-dimensional being is a state of being with no upward mobility. How would that be satisfying in the long term for beings that have always been innately driven by the need for new discoveries? The way that I view it is that I think there could be an infinite amount of spiritual development that you can gain. You know, You're talking to the five-dimensional creatures, but there's... 38 dimensional creatures maybe an infinite number of dimensions and that it gets to a point there's where, always another seth rogan right there's always <laughs> another seth rogan at a higher level telling you okay there's another level up and and that that itself it's like an mmo yeah exactly that itself is the process of spiritual development is you just keep moving up in spiritual i don't want to say complexity but i i would say 
unity with things until you may reach Godhead status. You may become this omniscient. I, I'm not sure. I, I, I have. I don't know where it goes. I you can only speculate. Yeah, in a sense, what I'm ultimately asking, which is unfair to ask a human being, is what satisfies God? Like, what does he get out of the bargain? And of course, we have no idea. Yeah, it's... I, th- I think... I think it's about the journey, not the destination. The whole point of it is the spiritual development itself, realizing new things about yourself. And maybe at that point, once you've made all realizations, if that's possible, once you become truly omniscient, it collapses back down into a singularity. And maybe you start again. And and the, 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 the God process begins, which is simply learning about your spirituality. That's... Uh... Actually, nicely fitting. Uh, I'm going to close here with a clip from the end of the movie. This is Cooper as the Tesseract is collapsing. Did it work? I think it might have. How do you know? Because the bulk beams are closing the Tesseract. you get it yet, Tars? They're not beings. They're us. What I've been doing for Murph, they're doing for me. For all of us. Cooper, people couldn't build this. No. No, not yet. But one day, not you and me, but a people. A civilization that's evolved past the four dimensions we know. What happens now?